Hello and welcome to the Feeling Good Podcast. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and joining me here in the Murrieta Studios is Dr. David Burns. Hi, David. Hi, Fabrice. Dr. David Burns has been a pioneer in the development of cognitive therapy, and he is the creator of the new team therapy. He is the author of Feeling Good, which has sold over 5 million copies in the United States and has been translated into over 20 languages. He is an emeritus adjunct clinical professor of psychiatry at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Welcome to episode 93 of the Feeling Good podcast. David and I today have decided to give ourselves a little challenge. David has quite a few techniques and in fact um, new ones come up you know every week almost but uh, there's a, a, a list that uh, he calls uh, 50 ways to untwist your thinking this is part of the ebook uh, for those of you who have it and if you don't have it you can always uh, order it from the website there's an order form but we decided to call this uh, podcast episode 50 methods in 50 minutes Right. So we're going to start talking really, really fast, so we can squeeze them all in. <laughs> well, actually, we, we'll, we'll try to, uh, to um, not give them short shrift. Uh, anyhow, this might turn out into um, a couple episodes. But, yeah. Uh, but th- it's a great idea, and it's one that you came up with, uh, Fabrice. And to tell you the truth, way back when I first started doing workshops, in conferences and stuff, I, I used to go over like 20 or 25 techniques really pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, that, that's kind of what I thought a workshop was. And people really, really, really liked it. And so, uh, I was, uh, pleased when you came, came up with this idea. I think we'll have, we'll have some, some fun with it. To, to learn a technique, you have to get, have an example of it and practice it. But, uh, it doesn't hurt to just get, a view, an overview of the landscape, like a Google, you know, map type of thing. Yeah. And, and see what all of these uh, techniques are all about. A couple follow-ups first. Uh, uh, several weeks ago, uh, Sarah Shane, one of the uh, participants in our Tuesday training group at Stanford yeah. kindly uh, did a uh, podcast with us on procrastination. Yes. And that was a very popular one. And you might recall that she was procrastinating about promoting her clinical practice and making brochures and things like that. And we'd given her an assignment the next morning to, uh, you know, only spend five minutes on it and then call us with uh, at the end of those five minutes with mission accomplished or I stubbornly refused. And that was a huge mission accomplished for, for Sarah. And she said once she did that five minutes worth, uh, she really got into it and spent several hours on it and had a ball. And, and she says she's been on a high ever since. And mm-hmm. we, I, we, I keep forgetting to give that feedback, yeah. but it was very gratifying. And then the next week, uh, Werner uh, Spitzboden, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, and Alicia Beale volunteered for part two on the feared fantasy. And Werner had insecure thoughts about starting out uh, again in clinical practice after working in administration yeah, right. uh, for, for many years. And Alicia had uh, self-conscious thoughts about merging with the advanced group and then having people notice her uh, uh, turning red and blushing. And then she thought they'll be thinking, I'm an idiot and I'm stupid and I'm incompetent because I blush. And the Feared Fantasy episode was one of my favorite podcasts, although we've had a lot of favorites. The live therapies have been favorites, but these were kind of like live therapy, too. And they both hit the ball out of the park on that podcast. They've both been doing a tremendous ever since. So they asked uh, asked me to pass that good news on. Yeah, to, that, that's great news. Yeah, to everyone. And then one last thing is that I think this is, is mid-June now when this one is being uh, published. Yeah. And if you're interested in some tremendous training, I've got my sum, two summer intensives com- coming up, four-day intensives. And the the one in July will be in Whistler, Canada, sponsored by Jack Harosi and Associates. That's uh, July uh, 3 to July 6. So I guess I'll be gone on the, on the 4th of, of July. Yes, 2018. And so uh, you can find the links to these on my website, feelinggood.com, yeah. and the workshop p- uh, page. But that'll be a, that'll be a beautiful one. Up, up in a great resort area, uh, Whistler, 
And then in August, we have the one here at the South San Francisco Conference Center, the my four-day intensive from August 6th to 9th, 2018. And uh, these two intensives are generally uh, my, my best workshops of the year. Uh, in San Francisco, we'll have a lot of people from my Tuesday group there, uh, all four days, uh, helping out with the small group exercises. So you get a lot of hands-on training and individualized feedback from me and my colleagues. Mike Christensen is going to join me up in uh, Whistler, Canada for the mm-hmm. Canadian Intensive. He's fantastic. Uh, we'll, uh, he'll be my co-therapist for a live demo up there. Jill Levitt will be my uh, co-therapist for a live demonstration at the San Francisco one. And uh, they, they should be uh, tr- tremendous, tremendous experiences. So with no further ado, should we just uh, d- dive in? Yeah, so we're, uh, we have in front of us uh, the list of uh, these 50 techniques. And uh, um, how about I call them out yep. when uh, we're ready to, uh, to start for each one. So number one is, of course, empathy. Right, and this is one of four basic techniques. Uh, and empathy just means that before you can do anything clinically, you have to form a warm, compassionate relationship with with, with your client. Uh, and uh, you can use the five secrets of effective communication to do that. We do tremendous training on that in my Tuesday group, and it, it's really an important key to, to, to clinical work with, with any patient. Empathy alone won't cure anyone of much of anything, but we're going to use powerful techniques, and unless you have that trust and warmth and acceptance, uh, you, you won't be effective with, with powerful powerful techniques. Yeah, that, that's been my, my experience. Okay, good. So next is number two, agenda setting. Yeah, uh, this is the most important thing in all of psychotherapy. It's a complex topic that we could spend, you know, seven podcasts on. We'd still be scratching the surface. But essentially, once you've empathized with a client... And by the way, you will be emphasizing this in your next book. Oh, yes. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah. And I sent Fabrice a, a draft of it uh, just the other day so we can bring you a tremendous uh, podcast on does the self exist and can yeah. the self be judged? Yeah, we're going to do that. Yeah, we'll do that soon one of the themes of the book. But yes, um, agenda setting, you find out what, if anything, the patient wants work, wants help with. Then you get a specific moment when that was happening because you can't treat them for self-esteem or depression. Those are vague concepts. I'd want to know what's the specific time of day that you had low self-esteem. Where were you? What was going on? What were you thinking? What, what were you feeling? Who were you interacting with? And then once you have a specific moment the patient wants help, you melt away the patient's resistance to change using a, a wide variety of uh, newly developed techniques. Yeah, in fact, uh, you know, saying that agenda setting is one technique is really uh, not really giving it its, its due. There's so many yeah. techniques that are yes. part of that. And I would add that all therapists believe they can do agenda setting and they're all wrong. <laughs> they all say, oh, just it's fine. You mean I'm out. wrong too? Yes, the goals of therapy, and it's, it's, it's vastly beyond uh, finding the patient's goals for therapy. It's really bringing the patient's conscious uh, resistance to conscious awareness and then melting it away quickly. Uh-huh. So number three is identify the distortions. Well, this is probably the most famous of all cognitive therapy techniques in my book, Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy. I, I created the list of ten distortions that I that, that I had uh, that I had created and was using with my patients. Some of them came from Albert Ellis, one, the grandfather of cognitive therapy. Some of them came from Aaron Beck, the father of cognitive therapy. Some came from Karen Horney. Some were ones I named and kind of created myself. But it's the all or nothing thinking, overgeneralization. Uh, self-blame, should statements, uh, mind reading, fortune telling. It's identifying these distortions in your negative thoughts, like I'm a loser or I should be better than I am or whatever are the thoughts that make you feel depressed or anxious or angry or or, yeah. or whatever. I actually counted them in, in the uh, Daily Mood Log and there's actually 13 because some of them have like, um, you know, several distortions within them. That's right. That, that's right. Uh, so, one example would be should statements. You've got should statements directed against the self, 
should statements against others. Yeah, and blame is self-blame or other blame. Exactly. And, then, and uh, then jumping, jumping to conclusions is fortune-telling or mind-reading. Exactly. And there's magnification and minimization. So oh, yeah, yeah. right. So there, there's a number of them. Yeah, but I would say that the uh, my list of 10 cognitive distortions is probably be, been seen, I would guess, by at least 10 million people uh, around around the world yeah. it's been in you know a zillion magazines and uh, it's it's very popular people can can really relate to that and it's helpful to see that the thoughts that upset you are wrong thoughts depression and anxiety are the world's oldest cons so I know that I'm going to take more time than is required, but I, I had a, a thought that there's more than just those distortions in in our thinking, isn't there? Well, you mean the self-defeating beliefs? Yeah, and, and oh, uh, you know, sure. Like, for example, people sometimes have magical thinking that would be a distortion. Yeah, yeah, but uh, we, I, I call that a self-defeating belief, yeah. or the, I should always try to be perfect, yeah. or my worth as a human being de- depends on my achievements, or yeah. I, I have to be loved to feel ha- happy yeah. and fulfilled, and those are at a little deeper level of the psyche than the cognitive distortions. The cognitive distortions exist in the here and now when you're upset. The self-defeating beliefs set you up for the cognitive distortions. Uh-huh. It's, it's the interaction between a self-defeating belief and a negative event that produces cognitive distortions, and that well, produces depression and anxiety. Just a quick example so they'll know what I'm talking about. Let's say you're basing your worth as a human being on your achievements. That's your belief system. Yeah. And as long as you're achieving or having a good podcast, uh-huh. you'll think, oh, I'm worthwhile, I'm achieving, I'm a good person. Yeah. But you'll be predictably get depressed or anxious when you fail or when you're in danger of failing. And then you'll think, oh, I've failed. I'm worthless. I, I'm no good. And you'll have all these negative emotions. Yeah. Well, maybe we should, uh, you know, plan an episode on, on that, that interaction between the self-defeating belief and the uh, uh, distortions. As well as how to change the self-defeating beliefs. Well, of course, yes. Um, so number four is the straightforward technique. We don't talk about this very much. Well, yeah. Uh, in the, I used to say that the straightforward technique is, is a great technique to try first with your patients because it virtually always fails and you can fail in 30 seconds and get it over with and move on to another technique. And the idea is fail as fast as you can. Have many techniques to challenge a negative thought. In the new era, this has changed radically and the straightforward technique is dramatically helpful for almost everyone I work with now because of the new uh, paradoxical agenda setting techniques, which yeah. makes the patient so easy to work with and so easy to change. But all the straightforward technique is, it's it just saying uh, to, to the patient, uh, you know, this, these, all these techniques have to do with negative thoughts on a daily mood log. You don't, don't just throw these techniques at, at a patient. You've got to have an agenda and a moment when they're upset and they're writing down their negative thoughts. And then these are techniques they can use to crush their negative thoughts. And so the straightforward technique is you just say, let, let, let's t- take this thought. You're, you're, you're telling yourself that uh, blah, blah, blah. Can you think of a way of talking back to that thought, a more uh, realistic thought, a, a more positive thought? And, and then the patient will, will, will tell you what their their positive thought is. And to be effective, the positive thought has to have two characteristics, although you've pointed out at a deeper philosophical level, maybe only one <laughs> characteristic, but there's a necessary and sufficient condition right. for emotional change. And one is that the positive thought they come up with has to be 100% true, and it has to crush their belief in the negative thought. And often the patient's thought, the positive thought they come up with to crush their negative thought won't really be true, so it doesn't help them, or it will be true, but it doesn't crush crush the ne- negative thought. Like, yeah. just to make a simple example, let's say you have the negative thought, I'm a worthless human being. Well, I would say 80% of the depressed patients I've, I've treated have, have had that thought. That's the essence, really, of depression, is feeling low self-esteem, feeling worthless. Now, let's say you take the positive thought, uh, well, at least I can boil an egg. Now, is that thought true, Fabrice? That's true. So that has the, the, the necessary condition yeah. for emotional change. Now, what's the sufficient condition, Fabrice? It has to crush the thought I'm a worthless human being. And will the person's belief go down in that thought? 
Well, barely. Not at all. They'll say I'm still worthless. Even worthless people can boil an egg. So that has the necessary but not sufficient condition for emotional change. So that's a a very simple technique. But now, as I say, when we work with people, reduce their resistance using positive reframing, magic button, uh, magic dial, all all these cool new techniques, often they can crush uh, their negative thoughts just with the straightforward technique. All right. So now, beyond the basic techniques, the uh, next one is the double standard technique. Right, and now these are in categories. And what category is this one? This is listed under compassion-based techniques, which R- only has one technique under that category. <laughs> yeah, you can put empathy under that category. You can also put uh, the new paradoxical agenda-setting techniques under yeah. that category, too. Part of it is that these things can shift because sometimes they exist in many different different categories. Yeah. But compassion, uh, the uh, double standard technique is based on the idea that most of us operate on a double standard. When, when we're depressed, and you who are listening to this, when you're down, having a moment of self-doubt, you probably rip yourself to shreds with self-critical thoughts. I shouldn't have screwed up. What's yeah. wrong with me? Blah, blah, blah. And, and if you were talking to a dear friend, you wouldn't, with this exact same problem, you wouldn't say all those mean things to them. You'd no, talk of course to them not. in a warm, kind, realistic yeah. way. And so the double standard technique is, is based on just making the decision to talk to yourself in the same compassionate and loving way you would, you would talk, talk to a dear friend. When I was in Philadelphia, we had a big cognitive therapy program. We had an inner city hospital and we put thousands of people through this group cognitive therapy program. And there was a woman who, who was in one of my groups one day and, and, and she had the thought that, that she was a bad mother and a worthless person and a weak human being because she'd been hospitalized for depression. And she was telling herself, I think I've abandoned my, my children and I'm a bad mother. And it was all just because she had to be hospitalized for depression. And the nurses who knew her said she's a very loving mother, you know, a wonderful person. She's just very self-critical. So in the group, I said, would you, would you talk to a dear friend? the way you're talking to yourself would you turn to her now and say oh because you had to be hospitalized for depression you're a bad mother uh, your your children feel abandoned you're, you're weak you you know you, you shouldn't have allowed yourself to, to get depressed she said no i'd never talk that way to a dear friend and i, I said well what would you say and she'd say i said you're you're a very loving mother and your husband is taking care of the kids and and it is not a matter of, you know, being a strong person or, or being, being shameful. If, if you're depressed, you, you got hospitalized, you, you, you get some help and you deserve all the support and love in the world. And I said, are those thoughts true? And she said, absolutely. I said, would you be willing to talk to yourself that way? And she said, oh, you mean I would have a right to do that? And I said, absolutely. Talk to yourself like that right now and she, and she did it and her her depression snapped just disappeared just in the snap of a finger yeah and and the thing is that the the dear friend is somebody who's like us oh yeah so an identical person if 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 i say something to that friend that is true for the friend it's obviously true for me too yeah exactly exactly and there are a lot of twists on all of these techniques yeah, of course. but it's uh, it, no one technique works for everyone no. but th- this is a very lovely uh, very lovely technique now if a person doesn't have a double standard it won't work because some people hate themselves and hate others. Yeah. So you say, what would you say to a dear friend just like you? And she said, I'd probably tell them to commit suicide. <laughs> you yes. know, the technique didn't okay, work. Okay, that one is not going to work, yes. <laughs> so now we're moving on to the section on truth-based techniques. And uh, number six here is examine the evidence. Yeah, and there's four, four of these. Examine the evidence, experimental technique, survey technique, and, and reattribution. Now, there's two ways that scientists can contest theories, and, and these were based on Beck's thinking that when you're depressed, you're like a scientist who, who has a wrong theory. You, you believe something about yourself or the world that, that, that just isn't true. And so scientists can examine evidence that, that's already at hand, like you can look up something on the Internet or you know go to the library, do, do, do research, and often there's facts out there that will prove or disprove a theory. And uh, so uh, let, let's say a patient ha- has the thought uh, when you're depressed, the hopeless thought, I'll, I'll be depressed forever. I, I can't improve. 
Now, that thought is flagrantly distorted and false because human emotions can't not change. Our feelings are always fluctuating. Yeah. But when you're depressed, you get this bizarre delusion that you're going to be stuck in severe depression for, for the rest of, of your life. And there's tons of ways to, to attack that. And it, it's got to be corrected because hopelessness often leads to suicidal urges. But one, one thing, and this is kind of a Buddhist tech, technique as, as well, is, is to notice that uh, feelings are, are impermanent. Everything in the universe is impermanent. And if you think about your feelings from, from the moment you were born up to the current moment, they've been constantly fluctuating. They're going up and down. When you came out the birth canal, you were screaming and crying, and then your mother comforted you, and then, and then you felt better. And so you probably felt worse 5,000 times. I mean, that's the nature of, of life. We, we go up and down all the time. But every time you felt worse, what happened? Then you start feeling better afterwards. Ex exactly. So that would be examine the evidence to see yeah. that what you're telling yourself yeah. is, 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 is really not, is really not true. Okay. So number seven is the experimental technique. That's where you do an actual experiment to, to test your belief. You're not doing library research or internet research, but, but you set up a kind of uh, experiment. I, uh, a, a psychologist uh, I, I treated had a bridge phobia. She was afraid of driving across the bridge, and she had a lot of ideas about what would happen if she if she tried to cross the bridge while mm -hmm. you know dr driving. And and one w was that the uh, the bridge the bridge might collapse. Yeah, and you know they'd all fall into some ravine or something and die. And the other is that she uh, her her hands would get sweaty, so she couldn't. Hold, control the uh, steering wheel. Yeah, and she these thoughts just ter terrified her, and so we had her do uh, two experiments to to test these these thoughts. One, I, I told her to get a bucket of water and and uh, put it down next to her car, and then get in, put her hands in the water, and then see if she could turn the steering wheel. And she was shocked to discover that steering wheels are created so they're, they're, they won't be slippery and yeah. you could, she could easily turn the wheel. And then I had her to go out to the bridge that she thought was so fragile and, and kind of go out just to stand on it a little, which she wasn't too afraid, and then jump up and down and see if she could make it fall down. And she was surprised to learn that it was, it was quite, quite sturdy. There, there, there's a million ways to use experimental method. Another, you know, really funny one is, is I've had so many patients in my office who have panic attacks and they're afraid that, you know, they could go crazy during a panic attack. That's, that's one of the right. beliefs people have. Yeah, I, like that happens, make, yeah. Yeah, they had a mother who was in the mental hospital and then they're thinking, I'm going to snap too at some point. Yeah. And so I just have them, uh, test that with a belief to try to make themselves go crazy in the office. So scream, roll around on the floor, shout out weird things, gyrate weirdly with your body, whatever. And they're always surprised to discover they can't make themselves go crazy no matter how hard they try. And that generally results in a instant cure, yeah. often years of panic right. disorder. So that, those are good experiments to try. So, But there's other ways to find the truth. So number eight here is the survey technique. Yeah, this is a kind of experiment the scientists do. Uh, we had a, a, a beautiful, courageous woman in our summer intensive a couple years ago who got up to volunteer for the live session, uh, as I do on the evening of day one of all of my uh, intensives in, in San Francisco, so people can see this new team therapy working and how powerful it can be. And we worked with a woman named Karen, who will also be featured in my new book, who thought she was a bad mother because her daughter had been shot in the face uh, nine years earlier, mm -hmm. and Karen was blaming herself uh, quite unfairly, but blaming herself for this. And so she did, just did a fantastic live demonstration and blew all of her thoughts away. And then, and then she had three thoughts remaining on her daily mood log that she still believed the, the therapist in the audience are judging me. They probably think I'm a bad mother, and they probably think, how can she treat... Mind reading. Yeah, yeah, mind reading, exactly. How can she treat 
other patients when she can't even help themselves. And so how, what kind of survey could she do to test those thoughts? Ask those people, is this what you think? You exactly. Know? Now, do you think that frightened her or not? Oh, that probably frightened her a lot. And does that mean it's a good idea or a bad idea? Of course. Any, anytime you feel uh, anxious and afraid of something, the best thing to do is to face the fear. Ab absolutely. So she asked the therapist, would any of you come up to the microphone and I can ask you what, what you think of me? And about eight people rushed up to the microphone and they all had tears flowing down their cheeks saying, Karen, you, you, you were my, my hero, yeah. my hero tonight. And it was just, Absolutely boggled, boggled mm -hmm. her, her mind. Uh, yeah. So number nine is reattribution. That's an interesting one that uh, you use all the time, but don't talk about uh, very much. Can you say something about the reattribution? Um, this was one of the ones that, that one of Beck's original uh, te techniques, and I don't use it a great deal, but it can be, it can be helpful from, from time to time. It's for self-blame. When you're blaming yourself unfairly for bad things that that have happened, and when you do reattribution, you make a list of all the other factors that could have contributed to that bad outcome, in addition or apart from this interpretation that it's all your fault and 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 that and that that you're no good. The simple thing we've talked about on a previous podcast was an extraordinarily shy young man who was afraid to flirt with uh, uh, the checker in the grocery store. He thought she was giving him the eye, and and yet he was terrified and just looked at the counter and went out without talking to her and then felt ashamed and like a loser. And one of his thoughts was, well, if I try to flirt with her or say hello to her and she doesn't respond, it means I'm a loser. And then we listed, you know, 10 or 15 other interpretations of why she might not respond right. enthusiastically. Yeah. And it was, it yeah. was a tremendous relief to him. Yes, absolutely. Like she may be gay. Maybe she's not allowed to flirt with customers. Uh, maybe, uh, she's maybe married. She's married. Whatever. Maybe he's not very good at flirting yet because he's just a beginner. Yeah. You know, all, all kinds of uh, yeah. possible reasons. So now we're moving on to the logic-based techniques. Number 10 here is the Socratic method. Yes. Um, th that's where that Beck, this was another one of Beck's techniques. Yeah. He, he was uh, very good at it. Also one of my early students, uh, Sterling Morey from London, who now yeah. practices in London, is just wonderfully skillful with this technique. I would say Sterling Mori is also one of your early teachers. Oh, yeah. He was my first student and one of my best teachers. Yes. Absolutely. He taught me a great deal about tenderness and empathy and compassion. And it's not all techniques, but it's the relationship yeah. with the patient is so important. And he modeled that. But uh, on one of my Sunday hikes, one of the Sunday hikers had gotten irritable with with his sons because he and his wife were doing everything for them taking them for wonderful vacations sending them to costly private schools and he he felt that when it came time for them to help out around the house and do their chores that they were kind of sloughing off and so he had kind of shouted at them a couple of times and uh and then on the hike he, he was telling himself I, i'm a bad father yeah and it's so easy to to blame ourselves and label ourselves like this. But he he was feeling really really down, and and so I I, I use the Socratic technique and, and said so so do you sometimes do interact with your your son in, in ways that that aren't aren't so good? And he said yeah, not very often. But he said I, I sometimes do. And I said so does that make you a bad father? And he said, oh, absolutely, it does. And they say, oh, do you sometimes do positive things for your son and sons? And he said, oh, yeah, we send them in private schools. I spend all the time with them. I'm very loving. We, we do, you know, take them to wonderful vac vacations. And I said, and, and so when you're doing good things for them, does that make you a good father? And he says, well, I guess so. So I said, oh, are you a good father and a bad father at the same time? And he got his enlightenment, yeah, right, and he was able right. to, to see that he'd been generalizing from, 
you know, specifics exactly. to, to his whole self. So the Socratic uh, method is really good for overgeneralization. And labeling. And labeling, yes. But it could be good for uh, fortune-telling, sure. uh, t- too. Yeah. yeah, like something's coming up and it's going it, to it's gonna be so... So, so terrible. Uh, Sterling has a book out on uh, cognitive therapy for cancer patients, yeah. and he uses the Socratic method a lot mm-hmm. in there because they're predicting, oh, this procedure is going to be so awful, or this awful thing is is going to happen, yeah. and kind of leads them to to you know let let go of some of their their fears. Yeah. So we've done te- ten techniques so far, and uh, we're at about two and a half minutes per technique. But no, that's still pretty good. So yeah, that's not too bad. Moving on to number eleven, thinking in shades of gray. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. The, this is the antidote to uh, all or nothing thinking. Yeah. And you look at things in shades of gray r- rather than uh, you know thinking things are all one way or, or the other. A a patient recovered from depression and told himself, this is fantastic. I'll be happy forever. All my problems are solved. Yeah. Now, that's positive all or nothing thinking. Yeah. He's going in, into the all. That's right. And that's very dangerous uh, because you set yourself up for, for yeah, problems. You do, yes. And then several weeks later, he had You guarantee the disappointment. You're guaranteed disappointment. He argued with his wife. He went to bed in a, in a grumpy mood, woke up depressed, and then he told himself... Oh, the my recovery was just a fluke. I'm a worthless human being after all. The, the therapy didn't work. And then he went into a severe relapse because he went into the nothing mm-hmm. of, of all or nothing, nothing thinking. Uh, there, there are fantastic things in the world, uh, you know, medical breakthroughs, acts of fabulous compassion, uh, astrophysics developments that boggle the mind about the nature of the universe. And there's horrible things in the universe, despicable, horrendous things. But most things are somewhere, are somewhere in, in between. And all or nothing thinking just doesn't fit reality. And it also sets you up for a lot of pain. Yeah. Now, moving on to the section on semantic techniques. This is about how we uh, word things. So number 12 is the semantic method. Yeah, and that, this is a very humble technique, but it, it does have its place, and it's actually pretty well, useful. I don't know. You, you said it's, it's, uh, it's a humble method, but I, I, I'm telling you, I have a lot of clients for whom this is really a source of enlightenment. Oh, that's great. Well, I agree, and it is a source of enlightenment. And, and that's because when we're upset, we often upset ourselves with colorful Kind of mean-spirited, demanding language, like we say, "I, I, I shouldn't have that made that mistake," or "I'm, I'm such a, a, a loser." Uh, I, I, I treated a, a school teacher with a severe borderline personality disorder who, who was telling himself he was a defective human being, and that's again one of the distortions people get into when they're depressed. They think that they're defective, like a broken radio or something, radio tube, or that some inherently horrible, unchangeable. Uh, de- defect. And I tried 15 or 20 techniques with, with this guy uh, th- that were not effective. I, I couldn't dislodge him from that uh, idea that he was a defective human being. And then I suddenly dawned on me to ask him to do two cost-benefit analyses. One, make a list of the advantages and disadvantages of calling yourself a defective human being. How will it help you? How will it hurt you? Which, by the way, this is another technique, cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, maybe when we come to that one, we'll refer back to yeah, right. this this dialogue that we just had. Then I said, and when you're, when you're done with that, this, this is a homework assignment I gave him, make another list of the advantages and disadvantages of calling yourself a human being with defects. Yeah. Now, that's the semantic yeah. technique, subtle change in, in the language. So he, yeah, he brought... do the labeling, you know. Huh? Undo the labeling. Yeah, yeah. Instead of labeling your, 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 yourself, you you focus on on your behaviors. On on, you know, you yeah. you, you have a lot of de- defects. Um, and he came in then to the next session, and and he said, Doctor, you know, since you gave me that homework assignment, uh, nothing in my life has changed. 
I, I'm still a terrible school teacher. I still don't have relationships with women. I still have no interest. I'm still a very boring person. But when I think I'm a human being with defects, I realize I can work to improve my, my teaching skills. I can develop interests. I can begin to, to, to relate to women and learn how yeah. to, to relate to women. And to tell you the truth, doctor, uh, my depression has disappeared for, for the first time in my life. And, and then there were just tears going down his, his cheeks. He said, this has blown my mind. Uh, that, that's the, uh, yeah, semantic and, method. And, and one thing to point out is you go from something that's a should. Or as I uh, put it to my clients, sometimes, you know, a need or uh, a must, as uh, Albert Ellis would say, you know, he yeah. used the term of must herbation. Yeah, right. And and you go from that to preference. Yeah, I would, instead of, I, I shouldn't have made that mistake. It, it would be great if I, if I exactly, had yeah. made that mistake. And so you just stop using these words, this word should or ought yeah, to. Right. Um, yeah. So number 13 is let's define terms. Um, yeah, th this is a technique that has incredible philosophical interest and importance. It might not necessarily be real helpful to someone who's depressed, but it's, it's incredibly interesting. And, and that's, uh, when, when, let's say you labor, you label yourself as an inferior human being or a fool or, or a loser or a failure. Yeah. A lot of depressed people, anxious people feel like that. You ask yourself, what's the definition of a fool or, or a loser or yeah. a failure? And you'll find out that any way you try to define these terms, uh, you run into problems. It, your definition will apply to all human beings. In which case, it's nothing to be upset about, or it'll apply to no human beings. In which case, it's nothing to be upset right. about, or it'll just be a nonsensical definition, in which case there's no reason to be upset about it, or it definitely won't apply to you. A, a simple example is, let's say, uh, you, you say, I'm, I'm a failure, so then I, let's, or you could do it for I'm hopeless or anything, but what's the definition of, quote, a, a failure? Well, if you're asking me, I don't really have one, but I'll come up with one that a client might need. Well, somebody who, who is not able to keep his job. Oh, I see. A failure. So, so would you mean that they failed at that job or that they had failed at everything? Well, uh, they, well, they certainly failed at that job. Yes. So are you saying that all human beings who fail at some job or goal or, or task are, are, are failures? Well, I What don't percentage know. of human beings have failed at one or more things? Um, 100%. So are we all failures? <laughs> I guess we are. <laughs> so that, that's how it works. Or, or you could say uh, a, a, six, a, a failure... Uh, well, anyway, any way you define it, it'll just it just it just yeah. falls falls apart. We we could have another episode on the meaning of words. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's true. But a lot of our suffering, even suicide, can come because we're using language in, in a way that we we fool, fool ourselves. There's there's human beings. We all win at some things. We all lose at some things. And most of us are pretty are, are per, pretty average. So number fourteen here is be specific. This is a Buddhist technique that leads to enlightenment. It, it, it seems real, real humble. Uh, and we use it a lot in some of the role play techniques. But uh, when, when you have the thought, I, I, I'm a failure, to stick with the last example, it, it, it just sounds like you're the, this horrible human being. And, and then you, you, you could say, well, what are some of the specific things that, that, that I have fa failed at? Like, like uh, on, on one of the the hikes, uh, and this will also be in my in my new book. One of the hikers was thinking she was a bad mother and kind of a, a horrible horrible human being, and, and then we did something called externalization of, of voices, and, and we can illustrate that te technique right now and also show how how well, how be specific works. I mean, it, we're going to get down to it eventually. Um, it's listed in here and the role playing techniques. It, it, exactly, exactly. Uh -huh. But we can illustrate it right right, right now. And some of the one of the reasons that that she uh, was thinking she was a horrible human being is she's sometimes lazy. Now this is a very perfectionistic, high achieving. 
really a neat uh, a neat lady but uh, so uh, you be and her name's Heather we'll use that because it's yeah. it's in, in it's in the book um, you be the negative Heather and I'll be the positive self-loving Heather and I'll show you how be be specific works along with the acceptance paradox yeah so you you're a lazy human being Heather Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm often quite lazy. And to tell you the truth, I, I, I love being lazy. Uh, actually, we didn't do the technique. That, right. That's the paradoxical uh, uh, acceptance paradox. That's yeah. the acceptance paradox. But also say uh, you're a terrible human being. You're a terrible human being. Well, I have many faults. Which ones have you noticed? Now say, well, you're lazy. Well, you're lazy, yeah. Yeah, well, sometimes I am. I've been trying to be a little lazier lately, actually, because, you know, I'm kind of burned out as a mother and as a full-time uh, career and, and family family person. Uh, to tell you the truth, it's kind of nice being lazy sometimes. Uh-huh. So, so how, how did we define the term here? How, sorry, how, how are we specific? Sorry. Well, instead of saying I'm a terrible human being the way she was, you, you say, what specific okay. yeah. flaws right. do I have? And then when you have a specific flaw, it's easy to accept it with a sense of kind of humor, a, a sense of inner peace. Right. Our suffering only exists in the clouds of abstraction where you're telling yourself I'm a failure, I'm a terrible human being, I'm a bad, yeah. I'm a bad father, I'm, I'm, I'm a bad teacher. Uh, I've often told myself, I, David, you're a bad teacher. And I said, well, what, what does that mean exactly? What are my specific flaws? And I said, well, you've got these four specific flaws. Do you have some strengths? Well, i got quite a few strengths too. Can you accept the fact that you have these flaws and maybe make a, a plan to improve a, yeah. a, a little bit? Okay. On to quantitative techniques. Number 15 is self-monitoring. Self-monitoring was one of the first and probably least useful of all of the cognitive therapy techniques, but it it actually, like all of them, it, ha it has its place. And and you you just count things over and over again. Like let's say you have negative thoughts, you can count how many negative thoughts you have every day. You can wear a wrist counter like the ones golfers wear on their wrist to keep track of the score. They probably cost eight or ten dollars. And every time you have a negative thought, you, you click it, and then you let it go and continue with what you're doing. It's kind of like mindfulness meditation, where you let go of a negative thought rather than dwelling, dwelling after on it. After having noticed it. That yeah, is. after having noticed it. And, and, but with self-monitoring, your life becomes your meditation. You, 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 you're living your life, but if you have a negative thought, you, you click it. Yeah. A, um, uh, I treated a medical student who broke up with his girlfriend who was also in his class. And then she started dating another fellow in his class. And he started getting intensely jealous. And he kept having fantasies of imagining them having sex. And he was getting very anxious and angry and, and, and feeling inadequate. He kept having these, these, these fantasies all the time. And I told him to, to count them yeah. on a counter and to agree to keep it up for at least three weeks, because yeah. generally the, the thoughts will go down in the third week. Yeah. And uh, and it's just every time it, that he didn't have to fight with the fantasies, but every time he had these upsetting fantasies, he would he would just click it and then continue with what he was doing. And he was having 80 or 90 of these intrusive negative thoughts each day. And then suddenly in the third week, they went from 80 to 60 and then 20 and then four and then zero. And then he, you know, he, he didn't care at all yeah. about, about this issue. So it's a humble technique, but it can occasionally be uh, very helpful uh, to people. All right. So number 16, the worry breaks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Worry breaks. Yeah. This is another uh, quantitative technique, te technique. And again, these will be suitable for some people and, and not, not for other people. There's no yeah. cure-all, and we don't just throw techniques at people, but we're just trying to tell you what's available. Yeah. Uh, this is where sometimes you can schedule times every day to, to, to be upset rather than fighting against your thoughts. You can schedule, you know, say, uh, three minutes once a day or one minute every hour uh, and then you just dictate your negative thoughts into a tape recorder, and then at the end of the 60 seconds or three minutes, you stop and, 
and carry on with, with whatever whatever you were doing. I was treating a physician with borderline personality disorder who who would have all of these intrusive negative thoughts while he was making rounds at the hospital. Yeah. He'd yell himself, I'm a lousy doctor, and I probably forgot to do blah, blah, blah on my last patient, and I'll probably get sued. And he was just constantly distracting himself. So, so I told him to bring a tape recorder with him when he was making rounds. And then as he walked from uh, hospital room to hospital room, he would dictate these intentionally into the tape recorder. Yeah. Uh, like a like a cell phone to take yeah. the deal, and then go and examine the patient, ignore the negative thoughts, and then dictate them again. And then at the end of his rounds, to sit down in his office and turn on the tape recorder and force himself to listen to to all of this <laughs> self critical dialogue. And after two or three days of doing this, it began to seem ridiculous to him. And then all of this uh, self criticism diminished and disappeared. On, on when he was making rounds. That's interesting because I've I've used the, the technique with some of my clients. Oh, but you have. I, I didn't ask them to listen to their uh, to their critical thoughts or you know intrusive thoughts. Yeah, and it, it worked for them. But uh, I maybe I should also try uh, sometimes to ask them to re- listen to them. Well, you made an important point because these techniques are not techniques; they're metaphors for how to help people. Yeah, and once you grasp the concept, you can do them in a zillion different ways. Right. And yeah, you can individualize it and, and and be very very creative. So next one is uh, humor based techniques, and uh, number seventeen is the paradoxical magnification. Uh, yes, the, the uh, paradoxical magnification was helpful for my daughter when she was uh, preparing for her Aikido exam. Uh, she had the idea, I'm going to screw up uh, her, her black belt in Aikido. She was very devoted to Aikido, which is one of the martial arts. And uh, I, she kept thinking she'll make a fool of herself in front of everybody and uh, blah, blah, blah. And I tried a lot of techniques that didn't work. And the one that really worked for her was paradoxical magnification. I, I suggested that, that she just imagine uh, all the things that could, could go wrong dur- during her Aikido exam and just make it as horrible as possible. So she imagined getting out of there and she falls over and then she starts farting out loud and then everybody starts scorning her and pointing at her. And we made it really, really terrible. And then I told her to fantasize it and she just burst into laughter and it just broke, broke the uh, anxiety. And then she went just to have fun with her Aikido exam. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so there's, there's again a zillion, uh, kind of humorous way you, uh, humorous ways you can magnify things. The one time you don't want to use a humor based technique is, is with a patient who, who's angry. And then they'll think you're you're making fun of their their anger, and yeah. it's definitely a bad a bad idea. Yeah. I use a tremendous amount of humor in therapy. I, I know you do, and, and there's kind of like a, a, a skill to it that's yeah. almost uh, impossible to teach. It's more about you have to feel it. Yeah, right. Number uh, 18 is shame attacking exercises. Now, this is one of the best techniques. On the planet Earth, uh, like any technique, it can be <laughs> well, I know screwed you, up. You, you enjoy torturing your students with this one. Well, myself, too. I practice what I preach. But a lot of times, anxious patients, I would say all anxious patients, are, are afraid of uh, making a fool of themselves in public. And, and uh, they, they think that people will look down on them, and they're always trying to be so stiff and, and proper, which actually kind of turns turns people off. And so you can have the patient do something bizarre in public on purpose to, to make a fool of themselves to see that the uh, the world doesn't come to an end. Uh, a, a very uh, humble one. I, I was working with an attractive uh, young woman who was uh, an options trader in Philadelphia in this world of mainly dominated by men. And, uh, but, but, she, but she wanted to date, but she was very shy and was afraid of making a fool of herself. So I told her to, to, to go into the, uh, local Wanamaker's department store near, near the options trading, wherever they did it in downtown Philadelphia and uh, go in and find a real crowded area and then shout out real loud. The time is 4.38 PM Eastern oh, yeah, Standard right. I remember time. you talked about it. Yeah. yeah. And she didn't want to do it. And, you know, she thought this is going to be terrible. And uh, so she did it. She went in. She shouted it out. There were all these women buying stockings. There was some big stocking sale. 
and they just totally ignored her. And then she, I told her, then shouted out again, and she shouted it out again, and they, they continued to ignore her. And it just, it broke her anxiety. And then she was able to start going to singles bars and flirting with cute guys. And soon she had a very uh, rich, rich dating life. I've done a lot of uh, shame attacking exercises myself. And pretty soon you and I are going to go out with the Tuesday group on a Tuesday evening. As soon as we get our microphones to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've got some new microphones. And then we're going to get all the therapists going out doing uh, shame, shame attacking exercises. Yeah. Um, so now we're on to role-playing techniques. And by the way, uh, we just uh, did a series of episodes on those role-playing techniques, so people can also refer back to this. Yeah, and we just did externalization of voices, so yes. we don't need to repeat that one. Um, that's right. So, And people can go to um, episode 83, which uh, was when we demonstrated it. So number 20 is the feared fantasy technique, which we demonstrated uh, in episodes 86 and 88. Yeah. But you can talk about it uh, briefly. Yeah. The feared, uh, the, in the feared fantasy, you go into an Alice in Wonderland nightmare world where your worst fears come true and you meet a, a monster who, who uh, criticizes you in all the ways that you think real people might be thinking about you. But wouldn't say it, it 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 verbally, and so for for example, if you go to the the podcast, the second feared fantasy podcast, Alicia was 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 thinking that people would be uh, imagining that because she blushes, she's stupid and and yeah, untrained yeah, yeah. And, and 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 that type of thing. Now people would never say those things to her, so the only way she can confront the monster is is to act it out in this feared fantasy world that has two rules. If you think people are having negative thoughts about you, they really are. In addition, they don't just think them, they get right up in your face and and, and say them. You, yeah. And this gives you a chance to uh, to to discover that the, that the monster ha- has has no teeth. Let's quickly do it so they know what we're talking sure. about. Um I'll be uh you want to be Alicia? I'll or, be Alicia. And I'll be the group member from hell. And remember this is uh, this is imaginary and and uh, say can I talk to you for a minute Alicia? Uh sure. I noticed that you blush a lot in group and I just wanted to to tell you that uh, I I've just I've concluded from that you, you you probably don't know what you're doing. Well you don't know me at all. It's true I'm blushing but uh that means zero. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Well I don't care. I, I reject you. Good, good. I don't I don't care to be accepted by you. <laughs> So that, that's how it goes. And you can do a lot of role reversals back and yeah. forth and, and model all different kinds of ways to, to defeat these, the, these thoughts. Yeah. And the next one is the acceptance uh, par- paradox. Which, which is under philosophical slash spiritual techniques. Right. And I'll show you another way to defeat the thought that I just hit you with. Yeah. Using the acceptance paradox. You use self-defense. That's right. I did, and, yes. And the problem with self-defense is from a Buddhist perspective self-defense causes warfare and the person you're at war at is is yourself yeah and once you start defending yourself you'll get into a battle you may never never be able to win so i'll show you another way to defend to befriend the feared fantasy monster Uh, go go ahead we'll do a role yeah yeah, so i'll be the the uh, negative voice of the Mm -hmm. the monster well, um, you know, you must be stupid. You know, look, you're uh, just blushing. Well, you know, once you get to know me, uh, that's one of my lesser flaws, uh, actually. Uh, I, I, I blush. So you, you blush acknowledge you have, you have this flaw? Well, no, I would have to acknowledge I have tons of flaws. That, that's just, just one of a, of, of a long list. And, and sometimes I am. That's what I thought. <laughs> well, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, I, uh, have, have, there's a lot of things I, I don't know. Is there something you noticed that I did or said in group that seems stupid? Well, everything you say, you blush when you say it. Oh, I see. So it must be stupid. <laughs> yeah. Does that upset you? <laughs> have you ever seen, been around other people who blushed? Yeah, but you're such a blusher. I, I, I got an award for it recently. <laughs> and there's I noticed that there, there's some humor in it, too. Yeah. And I, you know, yeah. This is something that you inject quite a bit. But the one I had asked you to attack me with, you went back to the earlier ones, was, 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 was I, I, I reject you. Remember? Oh, yeah. That's the one you got real defensive on. Right. Do a role reversal. I reject you. 
No, no kidding. That that's too bad because I've I've kind of enjoyed you and I've learned a lot from you you here here in the group. Um, do you reject everyone with flaws or, or everyone who who blushes or gets anxious? Yeah, pretty much. Well, as a therapist, you must have a terrible time with your patients. <laughs> do, do you reject all of them as well? Yeah. So who won? Oh, you did. You yeah. did. So that's that's the acceptance uh, paradox. For some thoughts, self-defense works best. For some thoughts, the acceptance paradox is far more powerful. And for some thoughts, a combination is is the most effective. Mm-hmm. On the visual imaging techniques. Yeah, you, you don't uh, demonstrate these very often, so I'm quite interested to hear what you have to say about this. The number 22 is called time projection. Yeah, it's actually not one that that I that I use a lot, uh, but uh, you can have patients close their eyes, and then you can call it hypnosis or just vi- visual imaging, yeah. and take a trip in, into the past. Say say they've had a, a traumatic event, yeah, and and go back and and visualize that event and, and allow themselves to get as as upset as possible. It's called also called cognitive flooding, and just stick with the image and the anxiety and, until the anxiety dissipates and, and, and disappears. Uh, a lot of times when people have had last past traumatic events, they'll when they get a memory of the event, like being raped or or uh, like one one of my patients when he, he grew up. His father said, you've always got to go to the, the scouts and go to all the camping trips. And, and, when, and when he'd go on the camping trips, the scoutmaster and older scouts would take him out into the, into the woods and, and rape him. Mm, and it's uh, terrible. It, it, yeah, it was horrible, horrible for him. And he didn't have any friends. And his parents were divorced. And he lived with his father. And his father was a hardcore alcoholic who was drunk all the time. And so he, he never got any any support. Uh, but... Uh, uh, he, he would, when he would have a, a mental image of, of this, then he would try to push it out of his mind. And that, that's what, what keeps it alive. You can also use a technique, uh, which is called memory rescripting. And I, I think it's, it's subs- we'll come to it a little, little later. But you can also have the patient go into the past and then change, change the, the image, just like a movie editor changed the scene in the movie. For example, he could, we could have him enter the scene as a big powerful adult and, and punish that scoutmaster and have, have them arrested or, or talk to the scoutmaster and the older scouts and say the things that he, he never could have said as, as, as a little boy or yeah. talk to the father who, who abused you right. when you were little and say, Dad, I, I loved you and I needed your support. And when you took me out in the shed and whipped me all the time with your belt, it, it crushed it crushed my spirit, and I never I was always afraid to tell you for fear that I'd get get whipped again. And just yeah, well, you can travel in time and really change things. So that you know, one thing is is that we know now about memory is that memory is changeable, and it's not fixed like in a computer. That's a good point. When you retrieve it, you can uh, massage it, and it goes back in a slightly altered way. Yeah. So number 23 is humorous imaging. Um, th- th- this is another, you could call it a humor-based techniques, uh, te- technique. You can change an anxiety-provoking image in- into a humorous image, as we talked about with paradoxical magnification. You can also just create a humorous image. I, I was treating a pretty attractive but extremely uptight, a little bit paranoid uh, professional woman in Philadelphia, and uh, she wasn't she wasn't dating. She had extreme social anxiety, and she said in the uh, hotel uh, or the apartment where she lived, this this real cute guy would often end up on the same elevator. Uh, I guess they had similar schedules, but but she would never talk to him because she was afraid of uh, making a fool of herself, or you know, like shy people yeah. or just sure. So I I. I what helped her is I told her that when when she talked to him, he was an attorney to to imagine that that he was arguing a case in court with wearing only his underpants, <laughs> and, and this this struck her as as very funny, right? And 
It, it's kind of reminiscent of uh, this uh, suggestion they give to public speakers that to imagine that their audience is naked. Oh, I say I didn't hear that one. Oh, that you never be, heard that? Yeah, that's yeah. a good one too. And uh, and and so uh, and and I said also give him some kind of a, a compliment, you know, uh-huh. even if it's it's kind of lame, you know, like men like like compliments, particularly from attractive lady. And so the next morning, she he was right there. In the elevator, and, and she she pictured him in card and said, "Oh, that's a really acute tie you're wearing." Started laughing, and 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 so he said, "Well, what what are you laughing about?" She said, "I don't, I don't know. There's just something about you that makes me feel really happy." <laughs> and then he he says, "Well, I've been kind of noticing you too. Why why don't we get together for coffee yeah. uh, a, after work?" Uh-huh. And then they then they then they started uh, dating. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it a heavyweight technique by a long shot. It's a little gimmicky, but it's been helpful for for a number of people yeah, over the absolutely, years. Yeah. Number twenty four is uh, cognitive hy- hypnosis. Yeah, if you like hypnosis, uh, you know one of my former students and now dear colleagues, Matt May, uh, is very hypnotizable, and he loves to hypnotize people, and did it a lot as a teenager, and I did too. Mm-hmm. We both kind of like hypnosis and so if you like you can actually hypnotize your patients and and you can do any of the cognitive therapy techniques or the team therapy techniques or any form of psychotherapy when the patient is in a hypnotic state right and it's kind of like they're just much more suggestible and then you have all the bells and whistles of hypnosis you can project them into the past into the future you can have them image traumatic events on a movie screen and tell them that they have a a controller in their hand, like a television controller. So if the traumatic event becomes too upsetting, they can just change the channel. Uh, there's a, there's a just. I would say there's probably 35 hypnotic techniques you you can use that can be helpful for for people with with depression and anxiety disorders. However, hypnosis itself is not a treatment for anything. It is not, per se, therapeutic. It's it just getting people into a relaxed, suggestible state. And then it's the therapy that you do with them in that relaxed, suggestible state that's that, that can be very, right. very potent. I, yeah. I was telling my... my uh, one of the residents from Stanford that I'm uh, supervising uh, about... Uh, once that, uh, uh, just to disguise things, a colleague and I hypnotized a young woman who had been having uh, years of failed therapy for uh, hypochondriasis. She kept going to the doctor thinking, you know, she had a spinal tumor or this or, or, or that. And, and often that's this hidden emotion yeah. problem. Yeah, There's yeah. something she's not owning yeah. up to. They're, they're somatizing, you know. Yeah. And so uh, we, we hematized her together and told her that she would see a movie screen. She was in her backyard, and, and the part of the fence would turn into a movie screen. And, yeah. and then she said, oh, I can see it. It's totally like a real movie screen, and then said, now you're going to see something that you haven't been dealing with. Hmm. Uh, that's that's uh, the key key to your problem the last eight years. And um, uh, and then when you when you see it on the movie screen, you just wiggle your finger. And she was like five seconds, and her finger went up. Said, now you're going to be able to tell us, uh, you know, you won't wake up, you'll still be hypnotized, but you can tell us what you see. And and she said, "Oh, I'm seeing myself as as an old lady," and 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 she was getting tearful and 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 said, "Well, why why are you upset?" And she said, "Well, because I missed the boat in my life. I, I married the wrong man." Mm. And then said, "Well, what 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 are you talking about?" And and she said, "Well, uh, my boyfriend isn't that good with sex." And and I've just been too shy to to tell him. And then we told her she she could wake up and she could remember what she told us or not, and it was 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 her was her choice. But then, when she woke up, she she was willing to talk about it. Then we gave her the assignment to to talk it over with him, yeah, and to tell him what she liked and what she disliked, and uh, 
And she, she was very courageous because like most anxious patients, she was overly nice and afraid of, you know, being assertive or yeah. you know, always brushing her feelings under the rock or whatever, under the rug. And then she came in the next week in a state of just euphoria. She'd had the most wonderful conversation with her boyfriend. The sex got much better and they had actually gotten engaged. All right. But it was, uh, it was just a little, um, a little use of cognitive hypnosis. All right. I think that uh, we'll leave the rest for the next episode. Um, I don't want to go on for too long. But I think we covered quite some territory, and uh, I invite our listeners to join us next week for the remainder of uh, the 50 methods in not really 50 minutes, but... Metaphorically 50 minutes. Metaphorically. Thank you, David. Thanks, Fabrice. This has been another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast. For more information, visit Dr. Burns' website at feelinggood.com where you will find the show notes for this podcast under the blog page and where you can leave your comments and questions. The website has an abundance of resources for therapists as well as non-therapists, including books, workshops, a list of online training groups around the world, and much more. Theme music is Gypsy Jazz in Paris, 1935, composed and performed by Brett Van Donzel. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and I invite you to join us next time for another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast.